0: There, you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. In
1: the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Amen. Prayer of Saint Ephraim the Syrian. O oh Master who loves mankind, illuminate our hearts with the pure light of your divine knowledge, and open the eyes of our mind to understand the teachings of your holy scriptures and still in us also the the fear of you blessed commandments that we may overcome all carnal desires entering upon a spiritual life and understanding and acting in all things according to your holy will for you are the enlightenment of our souls and bodies O Christ God, and to you we give glory together with your Father and your all-holy, gracious and life-giving Spirit, both now and ever, and unto ages of ages. Amen.
2: Uh, our, Our subject this evening is a fascinating one, and I'll tell you that I signed myself up for it because... I wanted to know more about the Feast of the Presentation, the mystery of the Presentation in the Temple, and it has been one of the more difficult preparations I have ever done. Uh, So you're in for a a bit of a doozy here. Um, There's nothing light about what we're going... Well, I shouldn't say that because it's the Feast of Light, Candle Mass. But but, uh, there's nothing light uh, about the subject. It is a very heavy and deep subject. Uh, Many of you know this mystery through your praying of the rosary. The Roman Catholic Church does not apply an obligation, uh, attach an obligation to the feast, as you know. Um, However, it is certainly a feast which is uh, at the forefront of many, many Catholics who meditate upon the mysteries of the life of Christ through the Rosary. Uh, it is also one of the 12 great feasts of the Byzantine churches. So it ranks among the greatest of the feasts, the Nativity of Pascha, uh, and so forth. So uh, it is absolutely an important, important mystery of the life of Christ. It is among the most ancient of the feast that we celebrate as Christians. In fact, Pope Benedict 14th no I didn't misspeak, not the 16th, the 14th, um, uh, said it was of apostolic origin. And when a scholar says something is of apostolic origin, number one, it, it just makes it all the more important. But it also means something else. We really don't know where, we, where it started. It's untraceable. It goes back to the earliest days of the church. And when something has attached to it that kind of a history, it it gains even greater significance in the life of the Christian. Its liturgical commemoration uh, can be traced back certainly to the 4th century. And in the 4th century, we have homilies of St. John Chrysostom, St. Gregory of Nyssa, Cyril of Jerusalem, Uh, Gregory the theologian and others who preached on this great mystery of the life of our Lord. But it is also mentioned by the nun Egeria, who was a Spanish nun who went on pilgrimage from Spain all the way to the Holy Land so that she could see the holy sites of our Lord. And she wrote in her, in her diary, if you will, her, uh, her pilgrimage. All the details of what she saw. And sent those, those back to her fellow nuns in the monastery so that they could experience with her what she was seeing. And this is what she writes. Um, her pilgrimage was 381 to 384. So it's very, very early. She was in Jerusalem. She went to the church of the Holy Sepulcher. The Anastasis. And she says this: the fourteenth day after the Epiphany is undoubtedly celebrated here with the very highest honor. The very highest honor. Okay. What is mentioned also by Egeria and others is that this feast day takes this feast takes place not on February second, but on February fourteenth. February 14th, 40 days. I misspoke, I said for, the 14th day, I meant the 40th day after Epiphany. The, obviously, the, the presentation as we're looking at tonight is a feast 40 days after when? After Christmas, after the Nativity of the Lord, when the Jewish laws we'll look at called for the child to be presented and Mary to come also to the temple for a purification. We'll talk about that in a minute. But she says 40 days, not after Nativity, But after Epiphany, and what date is Epiphany? January 6th. 6th. Why is that important? Because it tells us something about the liturgy which was taking place in Jerusalem. Even in the 4th century, the Nativity of the Lord was not celebrated on December 25th. It was celebrated on January 6th. Why January 6th? Four feasts were celebrated together on January 6th. The epiphany or theophany, which means epiphany is literally the showing forth from above, right? Uh, What's the epi... uh, an epipen, doctor, right? An epipen is one, or an epidural is what? On the surface, right? Okay, it's on the surface or uh, above, right? Epiphany is a showing forth from above, or Theophany, a showing forth of God. And what happens on January sixth? What feast do we celebrate? Oh, I heard a couple different things. Right, we celebrate the baptism of the Lord. We celebrate um, uh, the th- visit of the three kings. Traditionally, also is celebrated in the old liturgy. Do you know? Ah, uh, the wedding at Cana. The wedding at Cana. Why? These are all theophanies, epiphanies, in which we not only see, see the historical event, but God enters into the scene and reveals the mystery of what's taking place. This is my beloved son. This is my beloved son. The apostles at the wedding of Canaan's eyes were opened and they believed. Right? It's a theophany, an epiphany. And so we behold the mystery, not so much of the historical event, but the meaning of that event. And so here in Jerusalem, even in the fourth century, this was still being celebrated. Okay? Forty days after then, on February 14th, not February 2nd, a jury writes, The 40th day after the Epiphany is undoubtedly celebrated here with the very highest honor. For on that day, there is a procession in which all take part in the Anastasis, in the, in the Church of the Resurrection, the Holy Sepulchre. And all. And all things are done in their order with the greatest joy, just as at Easter. So you can see the importance of the feast. All the priests, and after them the bishop, preach after taking for their subject that part of the gospel where Joseph and Mary brought the Lord into the temple on the 40th day. And Simeon and Anna the prophetess, the daughter of Phanuel, saw him, treating of the words which they spake, when they saw the Lord, the priests are treating of it, and of that offering which his parents made. And when everything that is customary has been done in order, the sacrament is celebrated and the the dismissal takes place." Okay, this is the, the nun, Egeria, giving us a sense of how old this feast is. It was not originally one of the great feasts of the church, Uh, Certainly not of the Byzantine churches, but in the 6th century, a great plague broke out in Constantinople and the emperor called for a procession. And on the feast that we're celebrating on on the 2nd, on the presentation of the Lord, uh, the people came together to celebrate the, um, the release from the plague. And at that point, among all of the eastern churches, this feast gained notoriety. Um, it's known by five titles. By five titles. The encounter with Simeon. The meeting. The meeting with Simeon. The purification of the Virgin Mary. The presentation of the Lord in the temple, as most of you know it today. Only 40 or 50 years ago, most Roman Catholics did not know the feast by that name. They knew it by the feast of the purification as the Roman Catholic Church focused very much on Mary, while the Eastern churches focused upon the mystery of what was taking place in the life of Christ, calling it the presentation in the temple. And we know it also as Candlemas, okay, because candles are blessed, and we'll talk about that in a few minutes. All five of these titles point to some aspect of the feast that is important, which we will take a look at today. As we begin then, I want to open with a question. What is this feast all about? How many of you like to pray the rosary? Or how many of you at least pray the rosary? Come on. All right. What is this feast all about that we've been meditating upon? Why is it important? Why is it one of the great mysteries of the life of our Savior? What can we say about it when we meditate upon the mystery? Though there is no obligation attached to the feast, the importance of the mystery is not lessened, and I would suggest that we approach with great wonder and desire. A people, we need to be a people of fasting and of feasting who desire to enter into the mystery of Christ's life. For on February 2nd, the feast of the presentation, the season of the Nativity comes to a close. How many of us still have our Christmas tree up in our house? Ah. Where there is no preparation, there will be no fulfillment. How many of us fasted during the season of Advent? Where there is no preparation, there will be no fulfillment. And if you want to feast, really feast, don't go to some stupid office party five days before Christmas. Fast and prepare yourself for the Nativity of the Lord. And then you will be strengthened with great joy to celebrate for 40 days straight the mystery of the revelation of Christ in the flesh. And that comes to a conclusion tonight. I know it's, it's, almost, it's almost in conflict with Lent this year because Lent comes so early. Okay, it comes so early. But it is the conclusion of the Feast of the Nativity and the beginning of the rest of the Lord's ministry, it acts very much as a hinge between the two. And we will see how that works as we we come up. Lent is before us, friends. And I'll I'll just say it. Well, I might say it later during Q&A too. Where there is no fasting, there will be no feasting. And if you live on the basis of obligation, on, on a minimalist obligation, where you have to give up a little bit on two days. Come on. If you you approach Lent with lollipops, giving up lollipops and chocolate, okay, that's for the children. It's time to grow up as adults and start to prepare ourselves for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We can talk more about that later. We must not look at this feast or any of the moments of the Lord's life from the outside. We need to look at it from the inside. And I want to share with you, I'll, I'll quote from him a number of times tonight, Father Paul Hinnebush. you can come and gr- get his book later, but it's a little commentary in the Gospel of Luke. He says, in writing these things in the way that he did, it is Luke's intention that we too, his readers, see what has taken place, so that our hearts too will be converted. Luke intends to get his readers fully involved in the mystery of Christ, which he presents. Do not stand on the outside of any of the feasts of our Lord, any aspect of His life. You must come and stand in the mystery when you're reading the Scriptures. And certainly that is true with the Gospel of Luke and the presentation of our Lord. As I prepared my talk tonight, this evening, I ran into a common theme, really a problem, that I found among many commentators. One of explaining this feast by justification or defense And I would say very much defending it from the outside rather than getting in and seeing on the inside. If Mary was conceived without sin, as the church proposes, if she lived a sinless life, then why would she need to be purified? So the attack goes. Open your Bibles to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. I hope you all brought your Bibles with you tonight. I might give you the stink eye if I look around. Let's look at Luke chapter 2, verse 22. Verse 22. Okay, you with me? Luke 2, 22. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him, that's Jesus, up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. So there it is, okay? We're going to look at that more, so leave that open. But the purification... Of the Virgin Mary. Why was it necessary, if she was sinless, to go up to Jerusalem to be purified of what? And then to offer, thank you, and then to offer a sin offering. For what sin, Catholics? So the argument goes. And we can see the point. We can see the point. Why would Mary, like every other woman, need to be purified if she is without sin? And the common response, and the correct one, is that Mary, in this case, humbled herself to become obedient to the law to fulfill all righteousness. And if anyone should think that this is an inadequate answer, then I think we need to look no further than the life of our Savior, who came not to destroy the law, but to fulfill it why we might ask in response in response was Jesus baptized and of course we can say as we do in the case of Mary's purification that Jesus was baptized that as the gospel tells us he might fulfill all righteousness as he says in the Gospel of Matthew Jesus willingly lived under the law he who was the fulfillment of the law that he might renew the law that he might restore us, that he might resurrect us, that which is written on stone in the life of Christ will ultimately be written on flesh because of his obedience. We'll talk more about this. And while this is a true answer and a true response Mary's purif- regarding Mary's purification, I think it's a bad answer because it allows the unbeliever to determine how we go about meditating upon this mystery and explaining it. Ultimately, it takes the heart out of the mystery and allows us to be satisfied with a superficial answer. And what is the result? Jesus and Mary, as many Catholic commentators say about this feast, become an example, a moral example, that go to the temple to be presented before the Lord to show us that we too must be obedient and fulfill the obligations of the church. My dear friends, Jesus never did anything as a mere moral example. You and I do things as moral examples to our children. Unfortunately, in my case, most of the time they're bad moral examples. Jesus never did anything as a mere moral example. He wasn't another Mahatma Gandhi or Martin Luther King. Jesus took to Himself human nature and did in our human nature what we could not otherwise do. It's a fundamental difference. Jesus was not baptized to show us that we should be baptized. Jesus was baptized that He might baptize our human nature, plunge it into the waters of death, and then fill it with life and resurrect it from the dead in holy baptism. He never did anything as a moral example, and Mary certainly didn't bring Jesus to the temple as a mere moral example. I'm not saying that we do not need to fulfill the obligations which the church gives us. However, we should not fulfill those obligations because they're a law written on stone. We should fulfill those obligations because they are a law written on our heart. With great desire, we come to church on Sunday. With great desire, we meet the fasting requirements of the church. The minimal requirements and more, yes, that our heart becomes written by the law of God. As I said, Jesus assumed our human nature to do with it and in it what Adam and Eve failed to do. All right. That's enough by way of introduction and blowing off a little steam on my part. Um, I want to get into the mystery that is before us and put aside the the attacks on the spotless and ever-Virgin Mary and begin to see in her actions and in the actions of our Lord in the Feast of the Presentation, the actions, the saving actions of God Himself. So what is this feast all about? What is its inner meeting? How does it, as all actions of Christ, restore our human nature? How does it heal us from the wound of the sin of Adam and Eve? How does it bring us back into the home of our Heavenly Father? I want to begin by sharing with you a uh, a little sermon by St. Sophronius of Jerusalem. St. Sophronius, as some of you know, was Bishop of Jerusalem when Umar, the, the, the reigning caliph of Islam, marched on Jerusalem and conquered it. Saint Sophronius was the bishop of Jerusalem and had the unfortunate circumstance to hand over the keys to the city to the Muslim conquerors. He was a great bishop and this is what he says about the feast. I'll mention this in relationship to the reason we call the feast Candlemas. Our lighted candles are a sign of the divine splendor of the one who comes to expel the dark shadows of evil and to make the whole universe radiant with brilliance of his eternal light. Our candles also show how bright our souls should be when we go to meet Christ. The mother of God, the most pure virgin, carried the true light in her arms and brought him to those who lay in darkness. We too should carry a light for all to see and reflect the radiance of the true light as we hasten to meet him. The light has come and has shone upon a world enveloped in shadows. The day spring from on high has visited us and given light to those who lived in darkness. This, then, is our feast. And we join in the procession with lighted candles to reveal the light that is shone upon us and the glory that is yet to come to us through Him. So let us hasten all together to meet our God. It was customary in the church to bring candles or to be provided candles by the church. Those candles on February 2nd are blessed and they are taken home. Why candles? To remember that first procession up to the temple, the small procession of Mary and Joseph and the child of St. Simeon and Anna the prophetess who brought the Lord up and presented Him to the temple. We then go with lighted candles accompanying Him who is the light of the world. Go to church on February 2nd. Bring your candles and have them blessed. It is customary to take those candles home and burn them in your prayer corners. It is also customary when a dear one is dying to take that candle that was blessed on Candlemas and burn it next to their body as they go to meet the Lord. I have a handout for you guys tonight. Do you all have it there? You have. Does anybody not have it? Raise your hand if you don't, and we'll bring it to you. Raise it high, and then we'll bring it out there. I'm not going to go through it all, and um, I just want to point out two things for you. Um, Bob, I'm not, oh no, actually, I think I have mine. Yeah, I have mine. I just want to point out it's a two sided thing. I thought it was helpful just generally as a catechetical tool. A little instruction from the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Are you on that side of the page, the Catechism? And on the other side of the page, an instruction from the then Cardinal Ratzinger, a little thing he said when he was asked a question about how best to read the Bible in front of some young people, and he just began talking. Uh, He was an unbelievable, brilliant man. And he laid out one of the most clear uh, explanations, guides for reading Scripture properly right here. I love this. I use it a lot of times. And so I turn back to this section on the Catechism. And I just want to point out to you two things. I want you to come down with me The senses of Scripture. You see that? According to an ancient tradition, one can distinguish between two senses of Scripture, the literal and the spiritual, the latter being subdivided into allegorical, moral, and anagogical. Anagogical, okay? So, there's these two levels, but notice what it says next. All other senses of sacred Scripture are based upon the literal. Okay, that means the the number one job of the exegete, the number one job that you have when you're reading your Bibles, what in the world is the author talking about? What's going on historically, literally? What is he trying to convey through this text? And oftentimes it's literal, historical, and the spiritual intertwine because sometimes the author has a deeper intent than just relating what happened as in the case of the presentation in the temple. Sometimes he says things or quotes things that took place in order to bring out the inner meaning of what's going on. And that's exactly what we're going to see today on a number of levels in the Gospel of Luke. Okay, and then I want you to turn your page over, and I want you to, it's, the summary is at the very end, and I want you to look at that. I think that we must learn, are you with me? I think that we must learn these three elements, and those are the three elements covered in this. Reading in personal conversation with the Lord, reading in the company of instructors who have experience of the faith, that's the masters, right? St. Sophronius, okay, and others. That doesn't mean me, okay? It means the, the great ones that came before us. Okay, and reading in the great company of the church in whose liturgy these events continually become present anew and we gradually enter more and more into the sacred scriptures. That last point is what I want you to hold on to. That when we read within the church, we read within her liturgy. And here we're celebrating the feast of the presentation, which is commemorated liturgically. And what does he say? That these mysteries which we celebrate are presented anew. They become present to us when we celebrate them. And we'll have a chance to talk a little bit more about that uh, in a few moments. Okay. Um, So what's going on? First of all, let's look at Luke chapter 2, verse 22. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord, every male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem, whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout looking for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit. Alright, you've got to hold on to this. Don't just read over it. It was revealed to him by the Holy Spirit. That means he had a vision. God spoke to him that he should not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ, the Messiah. And inspired by the Spirit, he came into the temple. It means the Holy Spirit kind of got him going. Go! Go see the Messiah! Run to the temple, Simeon! He came to the temple, and when the parents brought the child, Jesus, to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed, the, blessed God and said, Lord, now let thou thy servant depart in peace according to thy word, for mine eyes have seen thy salvation, which thou hast prepared in the presence of all people, a light of revelation of the Gentiles, and for the glory of thy people Israel. And his and his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, the child is set for the fallen rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is spoken against. And a sword shall pierce through your own soul also, and the thought of many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, who, uh, from the tribe of Asher, who had a great, was of great age having lived with her husband seven years from her virginity and a widow till she was 84 years old. Now, you've got to remember, women were married quite early, 14, 15, 16 years old. So she was widowed at 21, 22, 23 years old. And the rest of her life was spent in the temple ministering to the Lord, praying, worshiping, and telling people about the coming Messiah. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day, and coming up to that very hour she gave thanks to God and spoke of him to all who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. All right, so there's the, the well, you want the literal historical? There it is. You read it. All right, you read it. Um, a few things about this text. First of all, um, uh, this is, a, a, what do you call this type of picture or whatever? Topography, yeah, from above, right? And there's Jerusalem, and there you can't read it, but that's Bethlehem. This is the Dead Sea, Dead sea and that is Jordan. the Jordan River. Okay, so Jerusalem, Bethlehem. You can see how mountainous this is, right? The hill country of Judah. We've heard the hill country of Judah in the Bible, haven't we? That's the hill country of Judah. All that area is the tribe of Judah, their, their, their land that was allotted to them. And Jerusalem is, of course, in the center of it. The distance from Jerusalem to Bethlehem? Yeah, five, five, five and a half, six miles. Yeah, very close. Very close. By, well, not, maybe not by today's standards. They walked. But really, it's very close. Mary would have stayed in Bethlehem, most likely, after giving birth for those 40 days and then made her way to Jerusalem. Let's see what else I got for you here. All right, that's just another picture, and I can't even see where Jerusalem is, so I'm going to skip that. Oh, yeah, there we go. I blew it up for you. Isn't that right there? Jerusalem, and you see Bethlehem? Right there? Uh, anyways, it gives you a sense of the hill country, and that's what I wanted to show you. Okay, uh, And then, of course, this is a model of the temple that Mary would have entered. Um, and a little closer um, uh, example of that. We know that women would have come to the temple, climbed up these 15 stairs, and entered into the temple uh, through the gate. Well, she would have, on that day, entered through the gate of the firstborn. The gate of the firstborn, which was on the southern side of the temple. This, of course, is the Kidron Valley down here. All right. Why do I know that? Because the temple faced toward the east, toward the Mount of Olives. So when the sun came up in the morning, it would shine upon that golden front of the temple, and the whole temple would just gleam with light. Okay. So she would have come up through there, entered into the court of the women, Climbed these 15 stairs to the gate of Nicanor, and there she would have met Simeon, who by tradition we know to be a priest, a Levitical priest, and he would have received the child Jesus there. In fact, we know from the text that he blessed them. Priests bless. Okay? Simeon would have received the child Jesus there, and we'll talk more about that. Okay. That gives us the historical and geographical understanding upon which we need to build the deeper, a deeper understanding. Okay, I had a more, I don't need to go over that. There we go, that's a nice picture, we'll leave that one up. Okay, now, St. Luke uses in this text, and in his entire beginning of his text, um, the practice of what we call typology. In which he uses images from the Old Testament to help us understand the mysteries of the new. I'll share with you Cardinal Jean Danielou's insight here. He says, before we study the patristic, the the Old Time, okay, the, the interpretation of the fathers of the mysteries of the life of the Lord, we must first define the principles which inspired them. For this symbolism the symbolism that we'll find in Luke's gospel is not subject to the whims of each interpreter it constitutes a common tradition going back to the apostolic age and what is striking about this tradition is its biblical character whether we read the instructions concerning the sacraments and here he's talking about how we celebrate the liturgy in the church whether we Read the instructions about, concerning the sacraments or look at the paintings in the catacombs. We are struck at once by the figures taken from Holy Scripture. Adam in paradise. Noah in the ark. Moses crossing the Red Sea. These are images used for the sacraments. It is then the meaning, or we could say these are the images used for the liturgy. And here we're studying the feast of the presentation which is celebrated liturgically. It is then the meaning and origin of these biblical symbols that we must first make clear. That the realities of the Old Testament are figures of those of the New is one of the principles of biblical theology. I'll say that again. That the realities of the Old Testament, the crossing of the Red Sea and so forth, are figures of those of the New is one of the principles of biblical theology. The science of similitudes between the two Testaments is called typology. And here we would do well to remind ourselves of its foundation, for this is to be found in the Old Testament itself. At the time of the Babylonian captivity, the prophets announced to the people of Israel that in the future God would perform for their benefit deeds analogous to and even greater than those which he had done in the past. In other words, God brought the people out of Egypt in the past God is going to do something new and similar to that in the new they crossed the waters of the Red Sea leaving behind them slavery and coming to newness in life with God God's going to do that again hello baptism God fed them with manna in the desert God's gonna feed you again with the Eucharist. John says that in his Gospel, doesn't he? The comparison between manna and the Eucharist. In other words, if you know what God did in the past, you will begin to understand what He's doing now in the New Testament and in the church. Why is this important? Because as we look at the Feast of the Presentation, God is going to do something analogous, but even greater than what He did in the past. And here's the key. In the liturgy... The sacraments carry on in our midst the great miracles, the great works of God in the old and in the new. This is what Cardinal Ratzinger was saying earlier. For example, the flood, the passion, and baptism show us the same divine activity as carried out in three different eras of sacred history. Do you guys understand what I'm talking about? God's love and God's action within mankind reveals itself in the same way and is the same one who is acting. The same mystery which is taking place revealed to us in shadows in the Old Testament, further revealed to us in the New and finally the veil is lifted in the liturgy of the church. Similarly, God prepared in the Old Testament for the great mystery of the presentation of the Lord in the New. Okay. Now, the first thing I want you to to notice um, in the text that we need to look at, we've got a lot to cover, is, well, keep your hand or put a napkin there in Luke chapter 2. I want you to turn back with me to Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 12. And if you're taking notes, write that down. Okay, we're going to Leviticus chapter 12. I'm going to ask you to go fast. Leviticus chapter 12. Okay. Leviticus chapter 12. The Lord said to Moses, I'm in. Je- verse 1. Chapter 12. Come on, Catholics. Open those Bibles up. Leviticus chapter 12. If you've got tabs in your Bible, and you, you know, get rid of the tabs. You should be able to find the book of Leviticus. Otherwise, you're going to get slaughtered by the Jehovah's Witnesses. Come on. Chapter 12, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, if a, chi- if a woman conceives and bears a male child, then she shall be unclean seven days, as at the time of her menstrua- men- menstruation. She shall be unclean. And on the eighth day, the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. Then she shall continue for thirty-three days. Okay, seven plus thirty-three is? Thank you. In the blood of her purifying, she shall not touch any hallowed thing, nor come into the sanctuary until the days of her purification are completed. Okay, that's what's going on in the life of Mary. She's gone now 40 days, her bleeding has stopped, and now she's going to go to the temple. And look, let's look at verse 6. And when the days of her purification are completed, whether for a son or for a daughter, she shall bring to the priest at the door of the tent of meeting a lamb, a year old for a burnt offering, and a young pigeon or a turtle dove for a sin offering. And she shall offer it before the Lord and make atonement for her. When she has been, then she has been clean from the flow of her, bl- her blood. This is the law for her who bears a child, either male or female. Now, did Mary bring a lamb to the temple? What did she bring? Well, what did she bring? (laughs) Hold on, you're getting ahead of yourself. What did she bring? Yeah, the birds, right? Why didn't she bring a lamb? Take a look. And if she cannot afford a lamb, then she shall take two turtle doves and two young pigeons, one for a burnt offering and the other for a sin offering. And the priest shall make atonement for her and she shall be clean. And you're absolutely right. There's a double reason here. Number one, Mary is poor. She is poor, but most important, Mary and Joseph are poor in spirit. And we know those who are poor in spirit are blessed, as the Gospel of Matthew says. They are blessed, for they will inherit the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven. As Monsignor Pope mentioned in his talk on the Beatitudes, to be poor in spirit is to be hungry and desirous of the things of the Lord. To be poor is to know that you are not quite at what God has fully prepared, and to want it more than anything. They were hungry for the heavenly things. They were hungry for the things of God. Mary was poor and she brought the gift of the poor for sacrifice but in her arms she carried the Lamb of God Himself. Obviously, with this interpretation, we can begin to see that there's more going on here than may first meet the eye. Luke is writing with symbols, or maybe better, he's painting a picture. He's painting a picture. We need to enter in and see what he's placing before us. A second theme that I want to point out to you that Father Paul Hinnabush mentions. He says, To understand Luke's account of the presentation, we must realize it is the climax of the whole story of the Lord's infancy. Hold on to that. It is the climax of the entire story of the infancy. That means the nativity. That means the annunciation, the nativity. It means the baptism, the circumcision, everything. The visitation. This is the climax. This is the most important moment. We must realize is the climax of his whole story of the Lord's infancy. Everything in that story leads up to the Lord's coming in the temple as a child in his mother's arms. And therefore, we have to take the themes that Luke has developed in the infancy narrative and bring them together to be able to understand the presentation in the temple in the terms that he has already set in place. For the sake of time, I'm just going to have you turn there, But Luke in his Gospel lays out the infancy and and Mary's place in the infancy in terms of two important things. Number one, the Ark of the Covenant. We know in the Gospel of Luke that there is a clear comparison between Mary's visitation to Elizabeth and the the bringing of the Ark by King David into Jerusalem. In 2 Samuel 6, and you can write it down if you want, the ark travels through the hill country of Judah. Mary arose in the Gospel of Luke and went to the hill country of Judah to visit her cousin. David declares, how can the ark of my Lord come to me? And Mary says, how is it that the mother of my Lord should come to me? The ark remains in the house of Abededom in the hill country of Judah, for three months. And all in the house are blessed, and when a thing is blessed, it is filled up with God's life. It becomes fruitful. Mary remains in the house of, of Zechariah, in the hill country of Judah, for three months. And Elizabeth gives birth to John the Baptist. David shouts and leaps before the Lord. Elizabeth cries out, and the babe in her womb Leapt with joy. There can be no doubt that Luke is trying to tell us that Mary is the new Ark of the Covenant. And if she is the new Ark of the Covenant, then that which is in within her is the new law. The new law. You can turn with me if you want to Jeremiah chapter 31. Jeremiah chapter 31. I'm gonna go fast, so if you can't beat me to it, you're gonna lose. Chapter 31, and I'm gonna look at verse 31 fast 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 Jeremiah 31:31 31, 31. It's in the Old Testament, nice. guys. <laughs> behold, behold chapter 31 verse 31. Behold the days are coming, says the Lord. If you're not there, listen. Behold the days of coming when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, though I was their husband, says the Lord. But this is the covenant which I make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their heart no longer will the law of God, and don't think about the law of God in terms of God as dictator, the law of God is God's will for his people it's how you, how you live rightly it's your, it's your um, car manual in your glove compartment if you follow those instructions your car will be a happy car, it'll live well this is God's law for his people, that we can be happy, that we can come to know him that we can come to know who we are made in his image and likeness This law cannot be written on stone outside of us. That's part of the fall. And the reason Jesus came was to restore in us the will of God written on our hearts. He is the law of God. Jesus fulfills the law because He is God's will in the flesh walking around. Don Prosper Garanger says, today the living ark of the covenant is ascending the steps which lead up to the temple. Let us be attentive to the great mystery. There's a third theme and one related to the ark of the covenant. And that is the glory cloud which rested upon the ark and filled the tent of meeting in Exodus chapter 40. Don't turn there. I got to get through to me. Us in Exodus 40, you can take a look at it. Read the whole instruction about the building of the tent, and at the end, it says that the tent was filled with the glory of God. The cloud filled the tent, the tent, and they knew that the presence of God was there because of the revelation of that cloud of glory. But, but, in the Babylonian exile eight centuries before the nativity of our Lord, when the people fell into deep and grave sin, when the Babylonians marched on Jerusalem and sacked and burned the city, the prophet Ezekiel, looking upon the temple, tells us that he saw the glory of God depart from the temple. The Ark of the Covenant was taken by the prophet Jeremiah and disappeared from human history, lost forever. And when the people of God returned from Babylon and rebuilt the temple, the glory of God never returned. And the people waited for 600 years begging and waiting for the return of the Messiah and the return of the glory cloud of God. It ascended from the temple and rested upon the Mount of Olives east of Jerusalem, as Ezekiel tells us, and departed to heaven, never more to be seen until the day in which our Lord and Savior, who is the glory of God, walked into the temple, or rather was carried in the temple in the arms of his mother. And what did Simeon, the great, righteous priests declare, mine eyes have seen thy salvation, the glory of the people Israel. The glory of the people Israel for the people of the Old Testament church was nothing but the revelation of the presence of God Himself. Jesus is identified by Simeon, the righteous, as the God of the Old Testament, the Lord Himself has returned. This is the long-awaited moment. Truly, Emmanuel, God is with us. Cardinal Ratzinger, in his wonderful in his wonderful work, "Spirit of the Liturgy," speaks about the liturgy as revelation, the liturgy as revelation. And I want you to hold on to a, a theological principle or phrase which you need to know. Lex Orande, Lex Credende. What we pray in the liturgy is what we believe. If you want to know what the church believes, and our dear brothers and sisters that are not Catholic that are here tonight, that are watching online and hiding in your homes, you want to know what the church believes, look at the liturgy. Look at the liturgy. The liturgy tells us the truth about God. It is revelatory. And if you take a look in the Old Liturgy, the extraordinary form, the reading that was appointed for February 2nd was Malachi chapter 3. Now, Malachi chapter 3 is right before Maccabees in your Bible. If you want to take a look at that, you can go backwards in your Old Testament from the end of your Old Testament, just work backwards. Malachi is your first or your last prophet. Your last prophet before the coming of Christ. okay, A little hard to find because it's short, but if you find, okay, you find the beginning of your New Testament, just go backwards a few pages and you'll find the prophet Malachi. If Jesus is the revelation of the glory of God, now having returned to the temple, then we can say for certain that the prophet Malachi, his prophecy is fulfilled at this moment in the presentation of the Lord in the temple, and what does He say? If you want to know what is truly happening spiritually at the moment in which the Mother of God brings God Himself back into the temple, restoring His dwelling among men, chapter 3, verse 1, Behold, I send My messenger to prepare the way before Me. Who is that? We know that from the New Testament, don't we? John the Baptist. Has John the Baptist already come? He's there, isn't he? He's baptizing in the Jordan River right now as Jesus is being presented in the temple. Okay? Behold, I send my messenger to prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. The Lord will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure or who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire, like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purify silver. He will purify the sons of Levi. Hold on to that because Jesus is about to be picked up in the hands of a Levitical priest. Simeon. All right. I'm way off my notes. Let me just find out where I am. Okay. Dom Prosper Garagé. All the mysteries of the man-god have for their object the purifying of our hearts. He comes to his temple, and this temple is our heart. But he is like a refining fire that takes away the dross of metals, He wishes to renew us by purifying us, that thus we may be worthy to be offered to him and with him by a perfect sacrifice. Jesus' entrance into the temple marks the return of the glory of the Lord. And who can withstand that day? A fourth theme that I have to mention and then get to the most important point. I'll get there Luke intends to see in this connection or in his in his description a further fulfillment of a type of the Old Testament and that is the story of Hannah and the prophet Samuel you can find that story in first Samuel you don't have to turn there cuz I'm gonna lay it out for you right now in first Samuel Hannah has no children in Luke Mary is a virgin Hannah sings a Magnificat that Mary memorized. If you want to know where Mary came up with her Magnificat, she took it from her patron saint, the prophetess Hannah. It's in the Old Testament, in 1 Samuel. Hannah presents her child to the elderly priest Eli. Mary presents her child to the elderly priest Simeon. Samuel rests next to the ark and God speaks to him. Jesus rests in the arms of Mary, the new ark, and God speaks with him. I want you to hold on to this, and we'll return to Samuel in just a moment. With all of this background, we can make our way up with Mary and Jesus in Jerusalem to the temple to climb the stairs to the gate of Nicanor. Alfred Edersheim, in his work on the temple, describes it this way it's a fairly long quote you can listen on bringing her offering she would enter the temple through the gate of the firstborn and stand in waiting at the gate of Nicanor for the time of the incense was kindled on the golden altar behind her in the court of the women was the crowd of worshipers while she herself at the top of the Levite steps which led up to the great court would witness all that passed in the sanctuary you can see that there, right? There's the, those are the stairs right there. Okay, So she would have entered into the court of the women and then climbed those stairs there to meet the priest Simeon. At last, one of the officiating priests would come to, he, to her at the gate of Nicanor and take from her hand the poor offering which she had brought. The morning sacrifice was ended, but few would linger behind while the offering for a purification was actually made. She who brought it mingled prayer and thanksgiving with the service, and now the priest once more approached her and sprinkled her with the sacrificial blood, declared her cleansed. Her firstborn, Jesus, was next redeemed at the hand of the priest with five shekels of silver, two benedictions being at the same time pronounced, one for the happy event which had enriched the family with the firstborn, the other for the law of redemption, and when with grateful heart and solemnized And solemnized in spirit, she descended those 15 steps where the Levites were wont to sing the praises. A sudden light of heavenly joy filled the heart of the one who had long been in waiting for the consolation of Israel. If the Holy Spirit had revealed it to just and devout Simeon, that he should not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ, who should vanquish death? It was the same Spirit who had led him up into the temple when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him after the custom of the law. When the aged believer took the divine babe from his, mother, his, his, from his mother's into his own arms, he felt that the faithful Lord had truly fulfilled his word. Content now to depart in peace, he blessed God from the fullness of the grateful heart. For his eyes had seen his salvation, a light to, to lighten the Gentiles, and the glory of thy people Israel, But Joseph and Mary listened, wondering to the words which fell from Simeon's lips. There's two things taking place at this moment. One comes to us from Leviticus chapter 12, which we've already looked at, and that is the purification of the mother of God. First of all, do not think that this is because somehow women are unclean or sin by giving birth. Not at all. This is not the point. It is because of the state of mankind In Butler's Lives of the Saints, I I believe he describes it best, he says, "...God in the old law declared several actions unclean, which though innocent and faultless in themselves, had a constant but remote regard to sin. One of these was childbearing, to denote the impurity of man's origin by his being conceived and born in sin." For the, le- for the removal of legal uncleanness in general, God established certain expiatory rites consisting of ablutions and sacrifices to which all were strictly obliged to desired to be purified. The second thing taking place is the presentation, or we might call the redemption of Jesus. And we find this in Exodus chapter 13. Let's turn there. It's very important. Exodus chapter 13. Exodus chapter 13. The Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me all the firstborn, whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast is mine. This is the chapter after the Passover. And what happened at the Passover? The firstborn of Egypt died. And and God says to Moses, Consecrate the firstborn of Israel to me. Turn with me uh, to verse 11. Verse 11. And when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as He swore to you and your fathers, and shall give it to you, you shall set apart to the Lord all that first opens the womb. Okay? Why is it important that these firstborn are consecrated to the Lord? Why? Why? Because biblically, when something happens to the head, it redounds upon the body. What happens to the first is revealed in the rest. The sin of the king becomes the sin of the people. A leader leads. And spiritual leadership brings about spiritual life or spiritual death. The firstborn were consecrated in Israel to be the priests of the people of God So that when they drew close to the Lord, all of the people would receive the blessing that those firstborn would receive. There's a further reason in Exodus, it tells us in Exodus chapter 4. Exodus chapter 4. And it should be in my notes, and I don't even see it, but that's okay. I'm going to look at it, and we're going to find it. Verse 22. And you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. Why? Because he hates Egypt? Because he hates the other nations? No. Israel is to be consecrated as his firstborn that the blessing of Israel might redound upon the entire world. That is the purpose of the calling of the people of God. Okay. Remember, in the story of Cain and Abel in chapter 4 of Genesis, Whose sacrifice was accepted? Cain or Abel's? Abel's. Cain offered some of the fruits of the ground, but Abel offered the firstlings of the flock. Abel recognized that the first things are always the Lord's, and only by extension may we use the rest. Okay, and this brings us to a broader interpretation and really the heart of the matter with about 30 seconds left. If Luke intends for us to see in Jesus, as I said earlier, a new Samuel, a new Samuel, the son of Hannah, then at this moment in the offering of the firstborn, Jesus, we must ask ourselves some important questions about Samuel. Who was he? Though he was a Levite, he was not a descendant of Aaron and therefore was not given the right according to the Levitical law to offer sacrifice. This is extremely important because I hope you know that Samuel did offer sacrifice and God was pleased with it. Luke is making the connection between Jesus and Samuel for a reason. In Samuel, we see the breaking of the Old Testament priesthood, he is of a different order. Father Paul Hinnebush says, for Luke presents the Lord's life as a journey up to Jerusalem, where he goes to the Father's house, the heavenly temple, by way of the cross. Thus Luke's story of the Lord's infancy is an interpretation of the Lord's whole life. His coming into the temple in the arms of His mother is as symbolic of, the, of His life's work as the angel of the covenant, purifying mankind like gold in the fire in the sacrifice of the cross. In other words, we must see the presentation of the Lord in the temple and the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross together so that we begin to see in the presentation of the Lord in the temple the first act of Jesus' priesthood. I said in Exodus chapter 13, verse 1, that the firstborn were called to be consecrated as priests. And I don't have time to get into this too deeply to turn you to the passages, but I'll give you the text for those that are writing it down. The Levitical priesthood is a band-aid on the Old Testament. It's a band-aid because of the sin of the golden calf. Up until the sin of the golden calf in the desert, after the leaving of Egypt, up to that point, the priests of the people of God were the firstborn. But the sin of the golden calf was the worship of a false pagan god that was known among the Egyptians, the worship of the calf, and that worship was done by the firstborn. When they committed the sin of the worship of the golden calf, the firstborn disinherited themselves and God removed them from the priesthood and gave their priesthood to the Levites who sided with Moses. You can write down Exodus 13, Exodus 32.29, Exodus 32.29, Numbers 8 verse 14, in which it says, I take the Levites instead of the firstborn. In Numbers 18, chapter 1, or sorry, chapter 18, verse 1 through 15. In Numbers 18, chapter, in eight, chapter 18, verse 1 through 15, it tells us that the firstborn was to be presented to the Levites, who then owned the firstborn and for the parents to receive back that firstborn child they would have to pay five shekels for the redemption of that child that the parents could take the child back and the child would be freed from the service of the Levites. Why? Because at the moment of the golden calf the Levites stepped in and in a sense saved the life of the firstborn. They stepped in to do the job that the firstborn should have done. And at that point, the firstborn became indebted to the Levitical priests. And therefore, the firstborn had to be redeemed. Jesus is now brought to the temple. Why do I bring all of this up, and what does it have to do with the presentation? I'll tell you. It has everything to do with the presentation in the temple. In my research, I looked not only at the liturgical readings in the Roman liturgy, but also the liturgical readings. I mean, flash a double zero so I know I'm drawing to a close. The liturgical readings among the Eastern Byzantine churches. And what epistle do you think is read? The epistle of the Hebrews chapter 7. Now, if you want to turn there with me, you can do so. Hebrews chapter 7. I know it's Hebrews, but it's in the New Testament, friends. Hebrews chapter 7. And you can simply look at the first verse and I'm going to tell you what it's about. The first verse mentions a man of the Old Testament. And who is it? Melchizedek. Melchizedek. And why is St. Paul writing about Melchizedek? Because the Jews at this time were accusing the Christians who claimed that Jesus was their high priest. And they say that Jesus could not be their high priest. Why? Because he was not a Levite. And St. Paul defends Christ's priesthood by saying that he is of another order, not the order of the Levites, who were a band-aid upon the firstborn, but he was there to restore God's original plan, the priesthood of Melchizedek, which was the priesthood of the firstborn. The presentation of the Lord in the temple is called the meeting. The meeting of what? the meeting of the firstborn priest Jesus and the Levitical priest Simeon. And at that moment, the great righteous Levite priest, the one who was a temporary fix for the disobedience of the firstborn, sees one who is fully obedient, Jesus. And at this moment, the righteous Levite and the entire Levitical priesthood proclaims, mine eyes have seen Thy salvation. At this moment, the righteous Joseph paid the five shekels and redeemed Jesus, the firstborn priest, from the hands of the Levites and freed Jesus for another work, that work which will be consummated on the cross. I hope you can begin to see what is taking place. At the presentation of the Lord in the temple, the Levitical priesthood ends. And at that moment, Jesus, the true high priest, restores God's original plan and begins ministering according to his priesthood. A ministry which which will find its fullness in his sacrifice. Not the sacrifice of animals. Not the spilling of animal blood. But the spilling of the blood of God himself. I'll conclude with Dom Prosper Guérinjé's meditation. We adore and thank thee, O Emmanuel, on this happy day which saw thee enter into the temple of thy majesty, carried in the arms of thy incomparable mother. Thou comest into the temple that thou mayest offer thyself for our sakes. Thou deignest to be redeemed by the payment of a ransom, for one day thou hast to pay an infinite ransom for us. Thou comest now to offer a ceremonial sacrifice, because thou art soon to abolish every sacrifice by the one alone that is perfect. Thou enterest today into Jerusalem, which is to be the place of thy passion and death. Our salvation urges thee on. O consolation of Israel, on whom the angels look and love, thou enterest into the temple, and they who were living in expectation of the Redeemer redouble their hopes. O that we had something of that love which burned in Simeon's heart as he held thee in thy arms. O Savior of our souls, if Simeon, was thus satisfied by seeing thee present, present thyself for mankind in the temple, how ought we to love thee, we who have seen the final consummation of thy sacrifice? Thou wilt be offered, not in the temple and in Simeon's arms, but outside the city gates and on the arms of the cross. On that day man will not offer up the blood of a victim for thee, but thou wilt offer up thy own blood for man. What return shall we make to Thee, O Divine Infant? For Thou bearest within Thy heart during this Thy first offering the same infinite love for us wherewith Thou wilt consummate Thy last. Can we do less than offer ourselves to Thee from this very day to be holy Thine? And now, O Mary, who could tell the joy and the humility of Thy maternal heart in this offering? Thou makest to the Eternal Father of His and thy son. The holy Anna too approaches thee, and thou lovingly receives her. Perhaps in thy younger years thou hast received from her in in this very temple the affection and care of a second mother. Thy heart thrills with delight at the hearing of these two venerable saints extolling God's faithfulness to his promises, and the glory of thy child, and the splendor of the light which is now to be shed forth on all nations. The happiness of thus hearing the praises of the God who is thy child fills thee with joy and thankfulness. But, oh, what a sword of grief pierces thy heart, dear mother, at the words of Simeon as he gives thee back thy babe. Henceforth thou must weep as often as thou look at him. He is to be a sign of contradiction, and the wounds men are to give him are to wound thy soul. O mother of sorrows! We were the cause of this. It was our sins that changed Thy joy into mourning. And yet Thou lovest us because Jesus loves us. Love us now and forever. Intercede for us with Thy Son. Pray that we may never lose the graces granted to us during these 40 happy days. These graces drew us to the crib of Thy child, and Thy affection encourages us to stay. We are resolved to maintain our position near Jesus, following Him through all the mysteries which are now to succeed this of His infancy. We are resolved to be faithful disciples of this dear Master, and follow Him as Thou didst, even to the foot of that cross which was revealed to Thee on this day. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thank you very much. We will, uh, we're going to take a very short break. Remember, we have coming up uh, Father Paul Shanks' program. We also have a program coming up with Father Saunders, pinches of incense we cannot render unto Caesar what belongs to God. Can you guys just wait for a moment, please? I'm just still talking. Just one moment, please. Please. I'll wait. Tom? Tom, could you please just sit down for a moment? Father Saunders, pinches of incense we cannot render under Caesar what belongs to God on Sunday, March 6th. Those flyers are in the back. We will take a short break, and for those that can stay around, we'll have a short question and answer. I would like to speak for a moment during question and answer. I hope we'll have an opportunity on um, on, uh, a little part that we didn't talk about, and that is Anna. Uh, 84 years old in the temple, a beautiful image of evangelization. So we'll take a short break for those who can stay around. Thank you very much for coming this evening.
1: How does this feast relate to why the tradition of removing the decorations in the church at this feast versus at the baptism?
2: Uh, okay, very good. And I, uh, he came up and asked me that, so I pulled this quote that we had read earlier, and I'll just share it to, with Father Paul Hennebush. He says, he says, to understand Luke's account of the presentation, we must realize that it is the climax, it is the climax of his whole story of the Lord's infancy. Okay? And this is true among all of the fathers, that the presentation of the temple is the fulfillment of what happened in the nativity. This is why I started talking about the dating of Christmas, For the early church, the big deal was not the fat baby Jesus in the crib cooing, okay? It's a very late kind of mm, poetic kind of development of seeing how beautiful the little baby is. No, the early Christians weren't interested in that. They were interested in the revelation of who that child was, and that revelation wasn't given until when? The baptism of the Lord, the visitation of the of the kings, uh, the wedding at Cana, and ultimately at the presentation, when uh, when Simeon and Anna profess, "This is the guy," right? And so the whole everything that started with the nativity comes to a climax now with this proclamation. And now, from this point forward, Jesus will begin his ministry in the Gospel of Luke. Okay, of course, in the Gospel of Luke, now he's going to head back to Nazareth. Right, and come back at 12 years old. But in between those two points, where does he go? He goes to Egypt, exactly. So he's in Bethlehem for a while there. Remember that uh, Herod kills everybody two years and younger, right? Because it's been a while, and they're not sure exactly when he was born. So he stayed there for a while, and then eventually they went to Egypt. Is that? Okay. We went to Bethlehem together. Well, actually, we didn't go to Bethlehem together because on our pilgrimage, that was when I was not leading a group. And uh, I missed the bus to Bethlehem because I got stuck in a monastery talking to a monk. It was, anyways, <laughs> long story. But OK, let's go. Who else got a question? OK, Bob's got a question. Going to make, why don't you grab Jim there and then, OK. Uh,
1: could you elaborate on your your statement about Mary being the new Ark of the Covenant, I think of her as like the new Eve and Jesus as the fulfillment of the law.
2: Well, she is the new Eve. Look, all of these Old Testament types converge. and I'll just sh- that, Remember that quote I shared with you from Cardinal Jean Danilo. He says, the crossing of the Red Sea, the baptism of the Lord, and His, his, and his passion... Are all the same mystery in which the same divine action takes place? And what is that same divine action? It is God's love. It is all of these are the revelation of the same mystery of God's love under different human veils, right? Under different times and circumstances. But God is, God is, right? He exists. And what Jesus does in His humanity, He takes up into the, that divine existence, which now becomes present for all eternity. And that present to God is accessed by us through the mysteries of the church. So that Jesus' baptism is not something... The presentation of the temple is not something that took place 2,000 years ago. It's going to happen on February 2nd in your church. Go to church with candles, friends. Jesus is about to be revealed and held in the hands of Simeon. And you can experience and live there, present, not in dreams, uh, in re- reality, because the liturgy, the liturgy brings us into the presence of God Himself, where Jesus is a babe in the arms of His mother, at the same moment as He's being crucified upon the arms of the cross. I know that's a heavy duty thing, kind of blows the mind, but it's it's true. And we can participate in that through the divine liturgy when the heavens are open and we behold the face of God himself. I'm not sure what the question was. (laughs) Eve okay, Eve and the Ark. Eve and the Ark. So, yeah, Mary Mary is the fulfillment of the redemption of Eve at the same time that she is the new Ark of the Covenant. Why? Because Eve was the original Ark of the Covenant. We were to be the Ark of the Covenant in which God dwells. Not a wooden box. But because we fell and we rejected our gift, God descended to the lowest things even to become present in a wooden box. To begin the process of the restoration by which he would take what was written on stone and write it once again in our hearts. Mary is the new Eve, and she is the new Ark. She is everything that Hannah was supposed to be. She is the fulfillment, and Jesus is the fulfillment of God's original design, which is flickering throughout the entire Old Testament.
1: Uh, Can you tell us uh, more about Melchizedek? Like, who
2: was he? I get this question all the time. I say the same thing. That is that St. Ephraim says that Melchizedek was Shem, was Shem, who was the son of Noah. Noah. Why is that important? Well, people say, yeah, but he has no father nor no mother. Was was Melchizedek God? No, no Catholic believes he was God, and yet every Catholic seems to think he was without a parent. All right, no. Melchizedek's fatherlessness and motherlessness was his priesthood. This is the point that St. Paul's talking about. St. Paul's talking in an argument with the Jews about Jesus' priesthood and says, look, there was a priest before there were Levites. There was a priest before there were Levites, and he outranks the Levites, and you should have known that, that the Levites were a replacement for the firstborn. And when God restores all things, He's going to restore the firstborn. Jesus is the firstborn. Jesus is the high priest. Jesus goes to the heavenly temple, not one made out of human hands, but made by the hands of God Himself. He goes to you and He goes to me to make His dwelling not only among men, but in men. All right, Bob. Yeah, <laughs> Melchizedek. Yeah. Okay. Fine. That's enough. Go read. Go read the Epistle to the Hebrews.
0: Could you tell us more about Saint? Is it Anne in the temple?
2: Temple. Yeah. I, I could just. Yeah. You guys. It's beautiful. Okay. First of all, hold on. Let me get my notes in order here because this is good stuff. There it is. Okay. Look. How old is she? Eighty-four. 84. You got. You got your Luke two open. Okay, take a look at it real quick. I'm not going to be long there, but Luke 2, real fast. Come on, Catholics. Yeah, you should be flying through your Bibles. Yeah. Someone beat me to it. No fair, I got one hand. Okay, look, Anna's right there at the bottom, well, it's on my page is bottom, verse uh, 36. A couple things about her that you need to notice. Okay. There was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel. To, look, you have to realize that to be a prophetess at this time means... To be with with John the Baptist, the first prophets in Israel in 400 years. Okay, this was not so. Okay, there's a prophet here and a prophet there. The first one since since Malachi, 400 years, and there was a prophetess Anna, the daughter of Phanuel. What does Phanuel mean? Before the face of God. Okay, where do you think Anna learned her devotion from her daddy? from her daddy parents grandparents you want to know how to keep your kids faithful to Christ you'll be faithful to Christ be faithful to him look at what happened to this beautiful beautiful lady where was her daddy praying in the temple day and night I can guarantee you before the face of God and she learned from him from the tribe of Asher She was of great age, having lived with her husband seven years from her virginity, and and as a widow till she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshipping with fasting and prayer night and day. There you have it. Night and day, prayer and fasting. You want a patron saint for Lent this year? Okay, right there. I'm serious. Pray to her. A prophetess, ladies. One who speaks the word of God, a prophetess, pray to her that she will strengthen you to continue worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day for 40 days until Jesus rises from the dead. And coming up at that very hour, she gave thanks to God and spoke of him to all who were looking for the redemption of Israel. She did not depart from the temple. The true temple in the presentation is Jesus. She spent her days and nights worshiping, fasting, and prayer. We who have seen Thy salvation, how do we spend our time? She gave thanks in Greek, Eucharistia. She was a Eucharistic woman. And spoke to all who were looking for the redemption of Israel. She's an evangelist. Eighty-four years old, brothers and sisters. Please, don't tell me, Deacon Sabatino, you go on EWTN. Deacon Sabatino, yeah, you go to the talking to people. I can't go out and talk. She didn't depart the temple telling everyone that she could get her hands on who would listen to this crazy old woman who was a prophetess tell about the redemption of Israel. He's here. He's here. Every single person she could find, she talked to about the thing that was most dear to her heart. You want want a patron saint to teach you how to evangelize? It's right there. And she didn't do it by great speeches on EWTN or anything else. She did it by grabbing every single person she could and told them her heart. The redemption of Israel has arrived. You don't have to live in sin anymore. You don't have to live like the pagans live anymore. Come to every single person we meet. Come to church with me. I have something that can make you happy, the only thing that can make you happy. Why not leave them in peace, Pope Benedict asked. Do we believe that we have the only thing that can possibly make humanity happy? And if we do, then we cannot leave them in so-called peace. We have an obligation to give that great gift of life which they need. She's a great evangelist. We cannot keep the gift hidden.
1: Do you think there
0: are any similarities between um, Mary presenting or offering her son to God and Abraham offering Isaac to God?
2: Oh, certainly. Look, offering sacrifice you have to realize this what is the heart of sacrifice what does it mean to sacrifice does it mean to kill and, and, and destroy no. no sacra feature it's two latin words stuck together sacra to make to uh, holy and feature uh, is is to make to make holy to make holy is to take the things I have and say to the Lord, I receive them from You and I give them back to You for Your service. Not to be out of My service and destroy them, but because I know the One who I've received them from and I live my life in thanksgiving. I live my life in Eucharist. I'm a Eucharisted person because I know where the gift came from. And I know that that gift is to be used as the Lord has given it. Abraham offering Isaac is a Eucharistic man. The image of Christ Himself being offered more commonly than an association with the Mother of God. But but all of the Old Testament, every time man raises his hands and gives thanks to the Father for His gifts, he does what Adam and Eve were called to do but refused to do. This is what Jesus came to do. To offer Himself to the Father. Well, they murdered Him. Never forget that. They murdered Him. And in the midst of that murder, he did something with it. He never lost his trust in his father. He never lost that connection of loving communion. And in that, man was restored. All of the sacrifices of the Old Testament point to that. All of the sacrifices of animals and birds are a way in which the Old Testament church gave what they had to God to share what was of theirs, their life, a gift from God back to their Heavenly Father. Jesus comes to do that in its fullness with Himself. So yes, yeah, you, Mary is a new Abraham. Why not? Mary is the new Moses. Moses gave the law written on stone. Mary gives the law written on the heart. God bless you guys. Thank you very much for coming today.